Thanks so much for joining for another episode of Run the List, a medical education podcast designed by Dr. Naveen Kumar, an attending gastroenterologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Emily Gutowski, a Harvard medical student planning to go into internal medicine, and Dr. Walker Red, myself, a internal medicine resident here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. So without further ado, let's run the list. six-year-old woman with hypertension, diabetes. She was presenting with generalized fatigue and really this morning decided to come into the ED after she saw some blood clots in her stool. Her daughter was kind of concerned, so thought it was worth coming into the ED. Um, Naveen, when she arrives to the ED, her blood pressure is 128 over 67, her heart rate is 79. She's uh, breathing at 18 times a minute and she's maintaining sets in the high 90s on room air. You look briefly at her meds, and it includes um, lisinopril, metformin. In addition, she's just taken an aspirin, 81 milligram aspirin daily for a very long time for essentially primary prophylaxis. So Naveen, before we dive into any more specifics of this case, just tell me a little bit about how you approach lower GI bleeds in general as a topic. All right, Walker. Well, I kind of approach the, you know, any GI bleed the same way. And the first thing is always looking at the hemodynamics. I want to know if they're hemodynamically stable or unstable. And then we're going to walk through kind of systematically what we need to do for these patients. But just remember, we're doing a lot of this stuff all at the same time. Um, one key point to make is that most of the data that we use to, um, to manage these patients comes from upper GI bleed but we can extrapolate that to lower GI bleeds and we'll do so for this, um, for this podcast. Other things I wanna do as we move through this podcast, we're gonna think about where the bleed is coming from and then also which medications are these patients on that are gonna increase the risk for having bleeding um, from a lower GI source. Excellent, so what are the very first steps for any GI bleed, no matter what, that, that you wanna make sure is done in the ED or immediately upon arrival to the floor? Excellent. So it's all about resuscitation. You have to get those two large bore peripheral IVs in because those allow for the best flow in terms of resuscitating the patient. So I always want to make sure, do, I, do we have peripheral access? And again, looking back at their hemodynamics, are they hypotensive? Are they, uh, are they tachycardic, indicating some degree of volume loss? I want to make sure that we can resuscitate, bring those vital signs into the normal ranges that we're looking for, and then decide what to do based on their, their uh, response to resuscitation. Great. So while we're focused on getting appropriate access and resuscitating our patient, um, let's just frame our thinking a little bit about you know, possible sources of lower GI bleed or even some common illness scripts you may think of that lead to lower GI bleeding? So I like to think anatomically, just like we did with upper GI bleed. So let's think about different and anatomic sources of bleeding. So the first one I think about is diverticular bleed. It's the most common cause of lower GI bleeding. And I think about it generally when the patient is presenting with painless bleeding. This is also true for vascular causes such as AVMs. Those also cause painless bleeding. And other vascular causes I'll think about include hemorrhoidal, particularly if the patient is constipated and noted straining, upon which then they noted blood in their stool or on the toilet paper. And then in other vascular causes you can think about are ischemia, uh, particularly if they have an associated crampy abdominal pain that precedes the bloody bowel movement, as well as if they've received radiation uh, therapy in the past, that can cause vascular causes of bleeding. The next bucket category I think about are inflammatory causes. So those include inflammatory bowel disease, as well as infectious colitides. 
both of these are usually associated with diarrhea. So if I think if I hear bloody diarrhea, I'm going to think about that category. Next big category I think about are neoplastic causes. That's namely uh, colon and rectal cancer. And I'll think about this category if the patients have alarm symptoms like weight loss or a family history of colorectal cancer. That will raise my suspicion for this being a possibility, as well as oftentimes they have a change in the caliber of their stool. So I'll think about those things um, when I'm thinking about could this be neoplastic. And the last thing you want to know is did they just have a procedure? Did they just have a major surgery where they had an anastomosis of two different parts of their colon or large intestine? Um, also, did they recently undergo a colonoscopy where they had a polyp removed and could this be a post-polypectomy bleed? So I think about the anatomy, vascular causes, inflammatory, neoplastic, as well as these iatrogenic. So as is so often the case, really a lot of this can be um, sort of determined by history and so much of the diagnosis, it sounds like, is really just based on the context they're coming in with. Um, in our patient's case, her recent medication change could well be contributing. Is there anything that specifically you may see uh, more often in lower GI bleed versus upper or any kind of like typical clues you think about that may help? point you towards that direction. Two things here. One, again, let's let's go back to the hemodynamics. When patients are hemodynamically unstable and presenting with severe hematochesia, about 15% of those cases are actually upper GI sources. So you have to think, could this be a brisk upper GI bleed presenting as bright red blood from below? In those situations, and, ge and the general recommendations are, if a patient's coming in with severe hematochesia, hemodynamic instability, you should strongly consider doing actually doing an upper endoscopy first. And that's what we often recommend to even start an IV PPI in these patients as well, just, to, just in case it's an upper GI source, you want to cover that. The other, uh, the other big clue that I look for are clots in the stool. If you see blood clots, that makes it very likely that it's a lower GI source as opposed to an upper because you can imagine the, the blood is actually pooling in the colon and then, and then clotting. And so if I, see, if I hear or see blood clots, I'm thinking, okay, this is actually most likely a lower GI source. Perfect. So with that, Naveen, let's get right on to how we're going to manage this patient. We already sort of touched on the importance of the initial transfusions and resuscitations. Are there any specific thresholds you think about with lower GI bleed? So as I mentioned before, a lot of our data uh, for lower GI bleed, we just extrapolate from the upper GI bleed. And that's uh, absolutely true for transfusion thresholds. So we actually use the same hemoglobin of seven cutoff for transfusion. Again, knowing this came from the upper GI literature, but for many reasons, we, we assume that it would actually be true for lower GI bleeds as well. So Naveen, our patients remain hemodynamically stable, assuming that hasn't changed. How are we kind of next gonna proceed, both diagnostically, therapeutically? The gold standard we say for lower GI bleeding is a colonoscopy. And the key with the colonoscopy is that the patient does have to be hemodynamically stable, as you mentioned, in order to tolerate the bowel prep to clean the colon so that we can adequately visualize for a source of bleeding. So in terms of timing, we recommend that a colonoscopy be done within 24 hours of presentation if possible. There were a two randomized control trials that looked at more urgent colonoscopy where patients actually had nasogastric tubes placed to administer rapid bowel prep. And what they found was, although in general, move, going sooner would allow you to find the source of bleeding, there's actually no difference in clinical outcomes. So for that reason, we still just stick with the 24 hours of presentation. Excellent. And for the future interns out there, this was, you know, as I finish up my intern year, a lot of what the good work you're going to be doing is 
not always the most glamorous, but nonetheless really important. So just from a practical perspective, um, it's always important for uh, the GI folks who are going to be actually doing the scope and for the patient's benefit that you use closed-loop communication with your nursing colleagues and with the patient and the family, making sure that the patient's actually adequately prepped so there can be a good study done. That's great. Um, I just add that like, you know, the, the, there is a fair amount of frustration when you have to do a colonoscopy on a poorly prepped colon. Um, it's frustrating for the patient because then they have to come back after prepping again. It's frustrating for the endoscopist because then you're trying to clean when you really should be trying to look for the source of bleeding. So, um, and then it's a strap on resources because these just require additional procedures. So many reasons why um, we love when our internal medicine teams really focus on getting the prep as, as perfect as possible. Love it. Sounds great. So. Um, patient's been prepped, patient goes down for colonoscopy. Um, in addition to looking through uh, the colon, what are, is there anything you can intervene upon? I, I know it probably depends case to case. Yeah, so there are some things. So diverticular bleeds, we can stop. So if we actually find the actual diverticulum that's bleeding, we can put a clip on it and that will prevent that from bleeding further. Uh, you know, other things that we can stop or prevent from rebleeding are AVMs. We can cauterize those with argon, argon plasma coagulation is the therapy we use. And then certainly if there's a post-polypectomy bleed, we can go and find that polypectomy site and either cauterize or put a clip over that polypectomy site. And then lastly, for radiation proctitis, we actually can use that same um, argon plasma coagulation therapy to cauterize all the telangiectasias that develop in that um, condition. We often get called immediately after surgical interventions where mm -hmm. they just put fresh intestine to fresh intestine and sure. anastomosis and oftentimes you can bleed from that area. So I, this is more from the surgery, our surgery colleagues, but we, we often get asked to do urgent colonoscopies or flexible sigmoidoscopies in those patients and we can find where they're bleeding from right at the margin of the anastomosis and put clips over that area too, saving the patient from another surgery. Beautiful. Whenever we can be less invasive, the mm -hmm. better. So. Let's say, as I feel like is sometimes the case, can't find anything on colonoscopy. Are there other um, sort of diagnostic measures you can take to get a look at the rest of the bowel? Yeah, that's great. So as long as the patient's stable, what we'll de generally do is have them come back the following day for an upper endoscopy. And we do have, we do have this ability to use longer scopes that allow us to push that upper endoscope more distally into the small bowel to look for small bowel sources of bleeding. That's what we call push enteroscopy. And then if we don't find any source there, we often proceed with a video capsule endoscopy, which is essentially swallowing a pill that has a camera built in and takes pictures as it tra travels down the entire uh, small intestine. And then you can read those images, see if there's any bleeding source, and if so, then follow up with an even more um, uh, advanced endoscopic procedure like a balloon endoscopy that lets you get even more distally into the small intestine to uh, treat those lesions. Those diagnostic entities are more what I've seen in practice. We sort of hear about in things like tagged red blood cell scans, um, CTAs, but I don't know how often these actually get used. Kind of what are your thoughts? Um, we don't have to go into detail, but what's yeah. kind of your opinion of these other options? Yeah, I mean, let's, let's first just think about when these should be done. So in general, I think localizing scans makes sense if you've already done the patient's hemodynamically stable, they had the colonoscopy, they had their um, uh, upper endoscopy, the video capsule endoscopy, you just don't know where the bleeding has come from, and then they bleed again. And I think in those situations, it's helpful to get a tag red blood cell scan or a CT angiography to hopefully localize where that bleeding is coming from. The tag scan, it's, it's definitely most sensitive. It's a nuclear study. But it, it localizes only to general area of the abdomen. And um, we, you know, we actually know that about in 25% of the cases, 
where the tag scan say, says the bleeding is coming from is actually incorrect. So it doesn't get you pinpoint location in terms of bleeding. The CT angiography does do that, but you need the bleed to be more brisk and you're mm -hmm. running the risk of giving contrast. Um, which a lot of these patients, they may already be a bit pre-renal from the blood loss. And so you can, you can imagine you may put them into acute kidney injury um, with the contrast load. Absolutely. If any of those t tests do come back positive, usually the next step is going to interventional radiolog radiology for angiography. That's where they actually localize the bleed through the blood vessels. So they're accessing um, the mesenteric artery or venous system through a series of catheters. The nice thing about that is it doesn't require PrEP. Um, and it does allow for intervention, so you can actually treat a bleeding lesion by coiling that area, um, but it requires even faster bleeds than the CT angio or the tag red blood cell scan, and, and sure enough, has um, actually has quite a bit of complications, because as you can imagine, what you're doing is you're just blocking blood flow to that area, so there's, there are ischemic complications to be concerned about. Great, so in the right clinical scenario, certainly something to consider, but we'll always have our GI colleagues to lean on at that point. Exactly, and think the only thing I'd add is that, you know, that we just ran through that whole protocol for the hemodynamically stable patient. You know, if someone's hemodynamically unstable, that's when you really go straight to these uh, localizing scans, because if positive, you can go straight to IR angiography without the need for the bowel prep. Great. And so that's the scenario where actually we heavily rely on our IR colleagues when the patients are hemodynamically unstable, so they're not suited for having a colonoscopy. Perfect. Really good to keep in mind. So let's loop back to our case. Again, this is a 76-year-old woman with AFib recently started on warfarin, um, hypertension, diabetes, who presented with fatigue, some clots in her stool, and really, though significantly lower than our baseline, her hemoglobin and hematocrit remained stable on serial checks. The floor team took really great care of her. She didn't even require any transfusions. And then once she was prepped, albeit reluctantly, um, with the help of the internal medicine team, she went down to endoscopy. The endoscopist um, was able to place a clip actually on a diverticular bleed she visualized. So after she came back up from the endoscopy suite, the patient remained without any recurrent bleeds and was able to be discharged relatively quickly with very close follow-up. Naveen, what are sort of the key clinical pearls you want our listeners to take away? Great. So what I hope you all take away from this, uh, this podcast and lower GI bleeding is number one, like with any GI bleed, make sure the first step is, is assessing the patient's hemodynamics prioritizing access so that you can adequately resuscitate them um, because again their hemodynamic stability is going to influence your ability to do a colonoscopy or change gears and go to IR if they're unstable. If it's a brisk upper GI bleed, you have to think about this with severe hematochesia. Again, 15% of cases of severe hematochesia are from an upper GI source. So think about starting a PPI empirically and starting with an EGD to rule an upper source before moving forward with the bowel prep and the colonoscopy. Number three, we always want to give you guys a framework. So again, think about the anatomical framework for the possible causes of GI bleeding, of lower GI bleeding, and use the history to help risk stratify what you think is more likely occurring. And then lastly, number four, if you can, really focus on getting these patients who are hemodynamically stable as quickly as you can to a bowel preparation because we ideally do the colonoscopy within 24 hours of presentation. Um, it allows us to both diagnose as well as certain situations provide therapy to prevent re-bleeding as in this patient's case. Perfect. So thanks again for tuning in and joining us, and we hope you all enjoyed running the list with us today. That is our episode on Lower GI Bleeding.